Blog Talk Radio. Awareness Radio. I am a Reiki master and certified sound therapist with a private practice in Sussex County, New Jersey, where we are streaming to you live as we do every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. 
Our chat room is open, so feel free to join the discussion that's already in progress now. We do keep an eye on the chat room, so if you have a question, post it, and we will do our best to get your question on air. As an alternative, for those of you who are on the go, you can't continue to listen online, call us directly by dialing 347-202-0227 and listen via phone or please, if you're driving about, please use your Bluetooth. Is there an afterlife, a God, heaven, or hell? Will I be alone after I die? Will I feel peace or pain? At some point in our lives, we are all confronted with these fundamental life questions. And tonight, my guest, Julia Asante, is going to speak to us about these topics. Julia, an established social historian of the ancient Near East, holds a Ph.D. from Columbia University and has, for over four decades, been an active professional intuitive medium and past life regression therapist. Her accuracy in telepathy has been clinically tested at Columbia University. And as a scholar, she's taught at Columbia, Bryn Mawr, the University of Munster in Germany. She's given talks at universities worldwide, offers workshops throughout both the United States and Europe. And tonight, we are so fortunate that she's taking the time to be here to discuss her new book, The Lost Frontier, Exploring the Afterlife and Transforming Our Fear of Death. Good evening, Julia. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you being this evening? Oh, I'm just great, T. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited. I liked your book an awful lot, and it's it's a topic <laughs> that <laughs> I did. It's a topic that people talk about, but they don't really want to, you know. Right. And you write in your book that the reason we don't know more about the afterlife and, and how to make contact is simple. You said that we're scared to death to talk about death, and that's true. And yeah. we're scared to death about death. And statistically, it's second on the list of top fears. I believe public speaking is number one. But with public speaking, <laughs> you know, but with public speaking, we see it all the time. We're familiar with it. We know it. Other people do it. But with death, we don't know anything more than we'll no longer see our loved ones again. And that is very, very painful. And we grieve our losses and fear our own demise. So we can't possibly know for sure what happens to us after we pass. And we, but we know it's inevitable. We're all going to do it. We're all going to pass. So why do we even worry about death, the afterlife? Because uh, the worry of it is controlling our society. The fear of death is controlling our society and our everyday lives. That's one aspect. The other is that um, it makes dying easier, um, and it certainly makes things better when you pass over. So there's a lot of does, reasons, I would say. <laughs> there are huge but reasons. if you're... A if you're afraid of the afterlife or worried about it, why does it make dying easier? If you're not afraid of it, it, it makes it easier. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah, if yeah. you're not afraid of it, yeah. Yeah, and part of not being afraid is having some understanding of what it is. Mm-hmm. And so you can let go of a lot of beliefs uh, that complicate after afterlife experiences. And, and one you know, you are that is by making contact with the afterlife. There's plenty of other ways. I'm sorry, what were you going to say? No, no, no. Go, you keep going. You're doing good. <laughs> <laughs> See, yeah, we um it controls our society, the fear of death. I mean, uh, we have a schizophrenic relationship with it. On the one hand, we don't talk about it. We don't even talk about it to the dying, which is a a horrible thing because um they don't get to, you know, help 
the plan, make plans for what what goes on with the family and friends after their demise, and that can be very disturbing to them afterwards and disturbing to the people who are still on this side, like people uh, at death of a spouse and the other one wanting to start another relationship and the guilt feelings about that or whatever, or what happens to a mother who dies, what happens to her children. And uh, there's a lot of problems on the other side because of unfinished business, for one thing. But we don't talk to the dying about death. So sometimes they die even with denial uh, because we keep telling them they're going to get better or we don't want to disturb them, uh, to stress them while they're dying, and et cetera, and so forth. And generally they want to talk about it, but they won't because they're protecting us. Once that's out in the air and once these conversations are had, reconciliation becomes possible uh, and the pain diminishes. Pain is, is you know, dying is, is highly stress-related. Yeah, I would think so, and, and I've seen it working in hospice situations, and I recall one specifically where no one wanted to talk about the fact that she was in hospice, and once you're in hospice, I'm thinking everybody knows what's going to happen next. It's, there's really no out of that. Right. And right. she was, you know, her husband left the room, and she said to me, I just don't want my kids to think I abandoned them. And I think I was the only person that would talk to her straight and not say you're going to get better. There was no, right. I wasn't going to lie to her. Right. What is the point of lying to her? And, and, you know, she knew what was going on. I knew what was going on. Everybody knew what was going on. And I said to her, well, they won't feel that way. And she said, how do you know that? And I said, I'll make sure that they don't. Because I understood where she was coming from, and you could just feel for her. And then shortly after that, within a couple of weeks, she did pass. But that was mm. her biggest fear as a mom leaving little children. Yeah. I've seen this so often. Uh, but in, I know two cases very, very personally where the mother was dying from uh, cancer, both, both mm-hmm. in the brain, and with leaving behind little children, and no one talked to these mothers about dying. The denial was terrific, and they held on to that denial after they died, one of them for months until I finally got to her. The other one I was able to help within three days, and she finally accepted her situation. But how crazy is that to never tell someone you're dying? You know, the person, this one was in a coma for in and out for, for a year, and uh, her last couple of months were spent in a coma. Why do that? Why it's not recovery or pretend pretend it's not yeah. happening? Who is this serving? No one. So that's and one it's not way respectful. where the, the fear of death operates in our everyday life. Another way is the way we are bombarded with death threats from the medical industry and insurance, pharmaceuticals, uh, even the anti-aging community and uh, news and entertainment is atrocious. Mm-hmm. It feeds mm-hmm. on on gruesome deaths feeds on it. It's money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, war industry, uh, you know, even Homeland Security gets its money from fear. We mark history by wars, massacres, uh, epidemics, and the way we teach uh, what humanity is, the way that we teach what humans are about aggression and hierarchical and uh, prone to, to killing and all of this even killing being something that one does in order to preserve one's own life. Well, that's, you know what, if that were so true, there wouldn't be anybody left on this planet. Right. So over and over and over again, we're bombarded with uh, death as an enemy, the body as a time bomb. It's only a matter of time before the unsafe universe is going to get you, and we're exploited and exploited and exploited. 
uh, by this fear and deliberately exploited. We're hypnotized into believing we're going to have this disease or that disease, endlessly hypnotized into this, and you need this or that in order to be safe. And that's why you write in your book, The Fear of Death is Running Our World. Oh, yeah, because of it all is. Those... No question about it. Yeah. No question yeah. about it. Yeah, absolutely not. And I really think that it's quite disrespectful when you're dealing in a hospice situation to treat the person like they – it's almost like treating them like they're stupid. Oh, don't worry, you're going to be fine. I think that's really a disservice to them, and it makes them feel like, what do you think, I'm an idiot? They know know what's going on. They know they're dying. And and also it takes – you know, we make uh, dying into into an act of victimhood or as an enemy. Mm. And this is the other thing, that if a lot of hospice workers know this, there are miracles that go on all the time at the deathbed. Miracles in reconciliation, miracles in uh, that threshold opening and people from the other side coming in or other types of beings. Uh, Miracles in terms of timing. Um, miracles in terms of arranging huge blocks of things to fulfill uh, unfinished business or uh, recon- to, to achieve reconciliation. It's just amazing what the psyche of a dying person can do. It is a highly creative act to die. You are not victimized by your body, and you're not fighting your body. Your body is cooperating with your deepest needs and isn't it true that it's a release for the person? I mean, they experience, because you've done near-death experience, so this is how you know it's not like, you know, you're just making this up. You've, you've actually taken accounts from people who have experienced NDEs. And yeah, and I've had one myself, too. So. Right. And and I think it's um, it's, it's releasing, isn't it? Is it not? Is it more, diff- it's it's more difficult to come back? It's a refocus. It's a refocus. When When life in the body is just not... Uh, fulfilling you anymore, you know what? What it's just it, the quality of it is degraded. It's not fulfilling you. You're, the the reason why you're here. I don't like to speak in those terms so much, but um, you've achieved what you wanted to achieve, explored what you wanted to explore, created what you wanted to create enough to to be able to leave it. In other words, it's a growth process. Mm-hmm. And and we see this with with terminally ill that they go through tremendous kinds of growth for which even things like Alzheimer's and dementia can uh, serve a role. So all of that happens, and and I'm hoping that physicians in the near future will not be looking at the dying as hopeless cases where the enemy finally wins, but uh, they will be looking at their roles uh, with the dying as midwives. And, right. Uh, it's a as, you know, as a, as a sacred act because it is, and people around the dying feel it. They they feel this opening. They feel this spacious moment. This something special coming into the room, and more and more people are seeing the visitors from the other side coming to either reassure the dying person or to tell the dying person that it's time for them to go or not time to go, and more and more personnel, hospice personnel, and. Uh, um, paramedics and whatnot are actually seeing the the energy body leaving the person's physical body and feeling Mm -hmm. it empathically. This is called shared death experience. Uh, Mm -hmm. We are moving. We wouldn't be having this conversation a few years ago. We are definitely moving. This is becoming a big issue. Uh, Near-death experiences have certainly been the ones in the forefront 
opening this up. However, their stories are not the, the end-all and be-all of what goes on after life because these are not permanent deaths. I'm right. Not, I don't, yeah, I don't even think people are making any decisions. I think they're having this experience, and it's already faded that they're coming back. And near-death experiences change over time. They change from culture to culture, as does afterlife experiences. Boy, I'm saying a lot, aren't I? Just well, no, but away. it's good. You want to ask a question? <laughs> it, it actually, my whole slate of questions just changed. I had questions written, but I'm not going to ask any of those because you're doing really well here. I do have one, though. Near-death experiences. Okay, so uh, more. it sounds like what you're saying is that more and more people are having them is, or, or we're, we're seeing more and more. Or they're both. they're dating them. Yeah. Why? Both. Why? Well, well that... for one thing, the, the technology is there for resuscitation. That's okay. a huge factor. And more people are they're not being the, the these reports of what happens after one dies are are not being dismissed anymore. And, and God knows, there's an awful lot of people who are writing their stories and these books. There's tons of books on on individual near death experiences. Uh, the most famous now being of Edmund Alexander's. But uh, and they are giving us a portrait of, of forgiveness in the afterlife, of benignity in in reality in the universe as a substructure, which is great, and that's something we can build on. But again, their stories don't always line up with what you hear from people who are permanently dead. Um, there are a number of, of different factors that go on there when the decision to really leave is the underlying decision. Uh, not just to dip in and out. And there's also, for me, a question of when a near-death experience is really different from an out-of-body experience. I'm not really clear about that. Um, and uh, something that I want to look at, it, what is clear is that whether you're you're 100% dead, just clinically dead, or having an out-of-death experience, out-of-body experience, excuse me, is that your protobiological senses are impossibly expanded. Blind people can see whether it's a near-death experience or whether it's just um, an out-of-body experience. Congenitally blind can see, for instance. And sight is not just sight. It's 360 degrees. Look at the hair follicles, the ceiling, and the floral at the same time. And all of our senses become heightened in ways that are not possible in, in physical form. And then there's the freedom, uh, self-recognition, uh, the meeting of friends, the uh, certainly pets who have mm-hmm. passed on, um, and the sense of of a kind of a atmospheric presence, a luminosity that is is the the real support, the tissue of of all realities that it becomes palpable. It's something that we can feel in life uh, while we're in the body. Uh, something that we feel sometimes in early morning hours when we just can't get out of bed, and it's that luscious enclosed, soft, supportive feeling, uh, dreamy, and you don't want to wake up from it, this becomes more pronounced when you're out of body and certainly something that in the afterlife becomes permanent if you're not having substantial difficulties. If you're having substantial difficulties, then, you know, you're probably going to need help. I think um, as far as near-death experience versus out-of-body experiences, out-of-body experiences, well, I had one, so I'm thinking, and it wasn't a near-death experience because I was not hurt, so I know that. It was just so surreal, but I was watching everything happen, but I was Mm -hmm. actually 
in it, but I was also seeing it. It was very strange. I had um, I was coming home from a, a, a conference in Vermont, and I skidded on ice, did a 360, and fell over the side of a mountain. I was in an SUV uh, and uh. landed on the top of birch trees. Birch trees don't hold anything. And, you know, there I am in a suit trying to get out ladylike, and I've got a cell phone that was one of those old cell phones because this was like 15 years ago, and it wouldn't work. I had no reception, and a gentleman climbed down and helped me up. And I could see all this happening like I was watching a movie, but I was also in the movie and saw that part too. It was very strange. I couldn't, but there was no way it was a near-death experience because I was fine. It was just weird. Yeah, I was fine. I was healthy. Why? There was nothing wrong. With no, me. no. I I mean, you, there are legitimate near-death experiences that happen when per, a person's giving birth. It, it isn't just about being ill. That's the point. Oh. Okay. No, it isn't at all. Uh, even to the point of being of light and the whole business can happen. You know, the classical near-death experience, the one that we've all come to regard as the near-death experience, very rarely are all those components in one uh, near-death experience or out-of-body experience. You know, only mm-hmm. Most people don't have, for instance, a tunnel experience. In some cultures, it's, it's almost totally unknown to have a tunnel experience. Well, see, so, and that's what you hear about the most. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, we've got a lot more work to do and to stop trying to make all of this seamless, to make all of this alike. and make all. We, we're still trying to create a concrete, real, fixed, experience as a, as an afterlife, even trying to make it a place. I mean, the idea of calling it heaven, uh, for instance, is a way of making it a place, and that's the last thing it is. It's what your consciousness experiences when it doesn't have a body. Mm-hmm. And, and and that's a whole different thing from a place. It's a non, they're calling now a non-local reality. There's no space, there's no time, there's no sense of distance. And more and more in physics, we're beginning to think, or physicists, uh, Certainly, some, especially coming out of Italy, who are beginning to think that this whole thing that we perceive as distance and time is all—it's all illusion. It's all yes. about electrical impulses and how we interpret them. Our brain interprets these electrical impulses, and that certainly is true. And uh, afterlife reality is also about electrical impulses. So is your dream world. The only thing oh, yeah. that separates it at all is this little tiny dab of matter. And I think you might remember, T, from the book that will use your body. If I, mm-hmm. if somebody took all of the space out of all of your atoms, all the space right. and oscillation and busyness out, and collapsed you down to the amount of matter in your body, it would be a tiny, itsy-bitsy microscopic dot. Mm-hmm. That's, only, that's the whole of the difference between you and the dead. That's yep. it. So you just def- you just deflated, and that that little piece of dust is yeah. gone, and your consciousness. Yeah, yeah. But I think too, a lot of a lot of things that play into it. One big thing that plays into all this is religious beliefs. You know, there are so oh, yeah. many people that devote their religious beliefs, and they believe that communicating with the dead is evil and dangerous. And I certainly don't believe that at all. But they do believe that, and that kind of puts a damper on things. <laughs> well, it's had it's had a bad uh, bad rap. Necro- yeah. Necromancy tea. It's called necromancy. Isn't that cheerful? Okay. <laughs> and that was outlawed in, in the 7th century B.C., actually 8th century. Uh, B.C., it was outlawed for strictly cult reasons, and where, where necromancy was punished by pain death, by stoning. Mm. And it had, it had to do with um, the ancestral cults 
ancestral communication, which was very high in the ancient world. It was quite. It was not just common. It was an everyday occurrence. Um, we know this from cuneiform remains. The things that I look at. Um, and when it came to the development of this cult in Jerusalem, which eventually ended up influencing Christianity, out of which Christianity grew, and, and, and Islam as well, um, it, uh, the dead were, were thought of as Elohim, which means divine or, or you know, minor gods in a way. Just divine. The word divine and gods doesn't, didn't mean the same in those days as it does today. There were a lot of gods all over the place, all kinds of levels of gods. And, however, this developing cult of Yahweh or Jehovah uh, forbade contact with the ancestors because of the the problem of them being also gods. And when that happened, the, the whole notion of the afterlife became more and more complicated. The old idea of Shoal, the old afterlife of ancient Israel, more or less disappears. It's hardly there at all in the Bible. The whole thing is extremely confusing. Death itself was construed as a punishment. Yes. And, and uh, you know, uh, Yahweh became known as the God of the living and basically abandoned uh, the dead. You know, in other systems you had gods who ruled in the underworld or were in the underworld and the rest of them were like, say, on Olympus, for instance, or someplace else. But uh, there were gods in the underworld in in the system that we know from, say, the story of creation, where death is a punishment. After you die, you were not expecting to meet God. Right. Right? That's mm-hmm. not where he was. So this, be- right. this became a giant problem, and it developed eventually into apocalypticism, which moved into Christianity, where they're, where they're waiting for the end of days, where people just sleep. And the righteous uh, awaken, and uh, death is conquered, and the the sinners or the rich and the whatever you know the other guys, the non righteous, uh, uh-huh. end up either being tortured uh, or or destroyed, extinct, extincted. So extinguished. It's, uh, yeah, <laughs> extinguished too. Also, yeah. So really, I mean, it's, a, it's bad news. What we inherited from the Abrahamic traditions, the reincarnational ones, are not much better. The notion of karmic debt and all of that is uh, also there's no not one shred of evidence for karmic debt in any research. And yet it's so big when people talk about, oh, karma's going to get you, it's going to bite you in the butt. Yeah. Oh, it's your karma, Uh your dharma. Yeah, I know. Yeah. A lot of this stuff has infiltrated infiltrated with different words into into this sort of new age, modern, postmodern, new age uh, spiritualism. Higher, lower is another way of saying, you know, the saved and damned. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, my it's, goodness. It's still dualistic, and uh, which is a real shame. You know, to me, I mean, I grieve when somebody passes away that I love. I absolutely do. Sometimes beforehand, even in hospice situations, if you've been working with somebody for a while, you you have to grieve outside of the room, or I feel I have to grieve outside of the room and not, show the person because you want to be there for the person. But I really believe it's like going to the airport and saying, bye, I'll see you later, because I yeah. will see these people later. I know yeah. I will. It's just it's Usually a long time. you see time. them in the first three days. <laughs> well, you know, you have to wait till you die. That. You see them in the first yeah. three days. Yeah. They'll show up. Yeah. So you're, and it's they're funny. okay, and you, especially if it's an unexpected death 
mm-hmm. or an accident or something, they are desperate to get in touch with us. Absolutely and I desperate. Think, I think people, everybody's able to communicate with the dead, I, I believe. And I think most people do, even if they're somewhat not aware of it or wouldn't acknowledge an incident as a communication from a past loved one. I really believe that. I See, One of my... One of my Yes, One of my patients was in hospice and she passed away. I went to her wake. Three hours later, I was at a place, it just happened to be that night, where the woman was doing gallery readings. And she came to me and she said, I have somebody coming through. And she described everything. And she said, and I said, yeah, that's her. I said, she's here. I said, why is she here? She's supposed to be at her own wake. It must be going really not well. She must be bored out of her mind to come up here and find me. And she said, well, she's amazing. They can by locate, you know. Oh, and she said <laughs> they can be in more place at once. Well, very easily. She said to me, she's very surprised that she can get around as quickly as she can. I said, I told her right. that because we Mobility, had conversation. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I said, give me a yeah. we're at. But three hours, it was amazing. So yeah, yeah, they can communicate. But I don't think people are aware that when they hear a song or see something or, you know, I don't think they want to claim that that's their person. Right. Right. Although statistically, uh, the best possible survey is one that took place over five years. Are you Mm -hmm. there? Okay, good. Um, (laughs) And that had 72% of the American adult population having had spontaneous encounters. Okay. It doesn't include children. It doesn't include people with deathbed visions, this survey. Okay. It doesn't include induced or uh, initiated Encounters with mediums or, uh, yeah, uh, it doesn't include this therapy now that's built around after-death communication called induced after-death communication therapy, which is knocking out things like post-traumatic stress disorder in a matter of seconds. One of the most riveting things going on in our time is using the dead for bereavement counseling and to get rid of traumatic stress uh, issues and reconciliation, all kinds of things. It's an amazing therapy, and and should be universal. Fortunately, it's already mm-hmm. in Europe as well as in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and it, it doesn't discount all these subtler uh, things of, of uh, communication that occurs, for instance, in prayer, or that occurs inside of your head as a mental intrusion. Um, so if you add all of this up. And you also factor in that people don't admit to having an after afterlife encounter because of the fear mm-hmm. of ridicule, or fear that people yes. are going to think they're crazy, or it's just their imagination, wishful thinking, whatever. You're looking at statistically something in the 90s and wow. uh, percent, and I would say it's 100 percent. I think you, wow, that's it huge. Doesn't happen. I don't think we go through life without it, even if it's a, a child with a dead pet. Uh, or um, that telepathic stuff that goes on in dreams, it goes on uh, in in, in sub-thoughts, it goes on in our heads. The communication stays. It's a matter of becoming more aware of it and being able to work with the signs that you do perceive or admit to and, um, and get it going so you can actually establish a dialogue. And that's really easy to do. So far, T, not one person I've worked with has has failed to do it. Well, Maybe that makes sense. Though, the minutes. Yeah, it's a mm-hmm. natural ability. Yeah, well, sure. You just have to know how. Nobody teaches you that. It's not something we learn in school. I think we need permission. And then how, yes. actually. Is, yeah, I have a lot of how in the book. 
uh, yeah. you know, as for tips. But that that kind of how we won't need in a few generations, as long as the permission's there and society supports it, it'll just happen naturally. It yeah, I believe needed, that's true. We needed once to learn how to use a telephone. Right. The strongest <laughs> analogy to this, yeah? We were afraid of mm-hmm. that. People nearly fainted when the telephone was first uh, put forth in public. They thought it was demonic or it was, you know, bringing in spirits. <clears throat> the analogy is very much there. Yeah, it is. I never thought about it that way, but that is absolutely yeah. true. Yeah. You know? And when uh, Alexander Graham Bell did... Uh, publicly introduced the telephone. He used Hamlet's soliloquy, where Hamlet talks to the skull. <laughs> it's perfect. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it mm-hmm. is uh, the thing that really launched um, a, re- a renewal in after-death communication and has uh, propelled it since then. The telephone has been the greatest symbol uh, for after afterlife communication uh, and is also an instrument of it. There are people who talk to dead people without even knowing they're dead, on telephones, uh, messages left on telephones, um, uh, telephones that are absolutely not operating where the dead still manage to call. So. Yeah, I've heard of that a lot, and, and it, I, I, yeah, and I believe it, it can happen because they need, they want, I believe they want to talk to us. They want to help us. They're, they're like banging on the door to, to let us in, but we're not, right. like you said, giving them permission. No, we're, not we're, allowing just, we're them. pretending they don't exist. Mm-hmm. And we, yeah, you know, we, we, our discomfort is such that we, we sort of say, well, they're there somewhere, but, you know, I really shouldn't have anything to do with it. Yeah, I don't have a discomfort level. God People think I'm crazy. Yeah. Why? <laughs> Because I, I'm, you know, I'll say, well, in my Reiki room, there's constantly people there. There's constantly, you know, uh, people will say, oh, I felt something, and, and I'll turn around and say, oh, it was your mother, you know, and it was, and, and then I'll realize it just comes out of my mouth, and 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 they'll say, and I'll say, I'm sorry, did your mother pass? And one woman said, yeah, she passed in me, and I was like, oh, thank God. Well, I didn't mean it that way. I just was like, these people, you know, sometimes when you first say something, they look at you like, what are you saying to me, you know? And stuff comes through when you're when you put yourself in that place of energy where you're bringing energy in to help this person you're going to get help from people you know and whoever wants Absolutely. to come in and help who's of god light i let them and if it happens to be somebody's past loved one i mean i've had a number of mothers come in for daughters who are you know early 20s or early 30s and they're there for their kids and these women are crying their eyes out because they're so glad that they were able to get this and that's what that's what I think is great as far as the grieving process goes. It's so difficult, and sometimes for many people it's very, very long. But after-death communication, at least from what I have seen, seems to help people in the process. It brings them a sense of comfort. It, it allows them to know that, oh, they're still there. They're, they're still watching me and helping me without actually physically being there. I told one woman, if you put on a pair of glasses like you do when you go to the movies to see a 3D film and it showed you all the people on this planet, you know, who are invisible, this planet's crowded. Mm. <clears throat> it's way more crowded than we know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they line up. <laughs> to get through. <laughs> not, not that they're here, here in the sense of, you know, physical here, but... Yeah, they 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 don't fail to come in either. Um, almost always, when it's important, they show up, and they show up at births and anniversaries and you know all kinds of things. And very often, that'll set off a grief wave. A person will experience grief just as the presence of the departed they're grieving for uh, becomes apparent. And 
<clears throat> I try to get people to experience this electrical phenomenon. That's sort of a tingling that goes through the body, or at least mm-hmm. around the head and the neck, shoulders area. Once that's there, it's like a uh, a fine tuning where you can pick up that presence. Once that that's there, it rarely fails, and that's the, that's a big signal for me, and it's a big si- signal for anyone I've worked with. Um, it becomes a reference point. When you feel it, you know there's a presence, and you can immediately tune in and start mm-hmm. the dialogue. It's really yep. important to have these techniques and these tools, uh, what alerts us to their presence. Uh, and it's also important for us to just create an ambience and have a set of techniques that allow us to call them in when we need to. It's not just one way. Right. Yeah, no, I'm I'm bugging them all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and about, about what exactly, T? And, and anything I need help with? Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, no, don't I mean, they not? need our help too. Yeah. Sometimes they'll need our help for someone else on the other side. They can't reach. They need to get connected with someone else on the other side, or they need to spring someone from the other side from his or her own illusion. People do create illusions of hell for themselves. These are mm-hmm. all these uh, because we die with the most amazing amount of poppycock in our in our heads. Or a person might be in one of these angry atheist types who doesn't believe in any of this stuff, nothing outside of the material world, and refuse to uh, give that position up after death. Somebody has to show up and, and help. And sometimes the person cannot, the person who's just passed in, what, in a condition similar to this or like this with difficulty, cannot focus on the other side into non-physical reality because they don't allow themselves to perceive it. So they're still more focused on us, but they can't go either way. They're stuck. So it bounces back to us, and then we bounce it over to the other side. And many of us are doing this kind of work consciously, but many, many, many more are doing it unconsciously in dream states in particular. This rescue mm-hmm. work goes on all the time. A lot of this wouldn't be necessary if we were just slightly more aware of what the afterlife is really like. You know, it's interesting because you talk about the helpers in your book and that you say no matter what stage you're enduring death, helpers are standing by right on the other side. And the one sentence in your book that really stuck with me was in this category was occasionally you might see someone who is still alive. If you're seeing people on the other side. How do you see someone who's still alive in the earth plane? Because they're because they have left their bodies. They're operating in uh, outside of the physical. Like you, I would see somebody in an out of body experience. I see people in comas who uh, are as though they're dead. <clears throat> I see people often with Alzheimer's or from from um, old age homes. You know, there was some kind of dementia where they're operating really out of their bodies. I see unborn children in that same arena. The question is not really why we see them there, but no, what is I the afterlife? Was, is that is was, afterlife and afterlife? No. It's just all of those dimensions that that exist outside of the physical. I just thought that was referring to the person who was doing pa- the passing. Like if I were dying, I would see somebody... That was living. I thought that's what uh, that was referring to. No, I'm not quite getting you. Okay. Um, well, when you say, you know, the people, no matter what stage you are in, in during death, helpers are standing 
by right on the other oh, side. Oh, living helpers. From, well, they're usually from the immediate family, a departed spouse, parent, grandparent, yeah. or so. So, however, yeah. occasionally you might see someone who is still alive. Now, who's so the who? The dying person or? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm, I'm sure. thinking. Cause you, sure. Okay, so how are they all seeing right, someone? All right, put yourself, T, in that situation. Okay, I'm dying. You're, in, you're telepathically or in resonance with someone who's dying. A part of you goes there and helps that person. You think they can't see you? Of course they can. Oh, okay, all right. Yes, yes, yes. Now I understand. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, it really blew my mind. I'm like, well, how can that be? That person's not dead yet. How can they be on the other side? All right, yeah, because everything's energy, and energy can be manipulated. I get that. We talk about that all the time on this show. It's energy awareness. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but no, it just really threw me for a minute. I was like, well, how can that be? And I kept, you know how sometimes you just think of something and you get stuck on it and you can't yeah, get yeah. past it. That's what happened yeah. with me there. See, I yeah. got stuck on yeah, that. Yeah, we forget how, also how, how little there is in terms of a division between the living and the dead, too. How much more resilient it is. One of the things that's really amusing right now in our society is not being able to decide what dead means. Okay. <laughs> you know, we really don't know anymore. <clears throat> there used to be no vital signs, you know, brain waves, right. no brain waves, right? Yeah. All that's gone now. <laughs> I mean, these are people who near death experiences, their bodies are actually turning stiff and cold to come back in. So, yeah. you know, all these things have to have to be redefined. And, and the, personally, it's too soon. We're just getting people used to an idea of an afterlife and actually trying to chart it a little bit. But I'm already beginning to be so unsatisfied with the idea of an afterlife because really from that same place, that same non-local reality, I'm seeing unborn people who show up with dead people in the same session. Hmm. Unborn people who are coming in to tell uh, their future parent what needs to be done before they're going to bother to show up. Interesting. Yeah. That's and these, the, yeah. these these so-called babies usually show up around the age of three to five, you know, so that they're distinctive. You can identify them. At the same time, they have full adult capabilities in terms of their reasoning and their and their ability to articulate telepathically anyway what their messages are. Well, sure, because they're not that in physical mean? form yet where they have to yeah. start. Yes, you but know? I think babies are, are really not in their physical forms either, talking about no, they're what. Yeah, they're, they know a lot they're more out too. Yeah. yeah, they're out. They're not they're, even yeah. in their bodies yet. No, the they, same and with they're people coming with in Alzheimer's. And, yeah, coma. You know? Yeah, someplace else. Yeah. So all of it has um, to be redefined. It's funny because sometimes I think when people are talking about death and dying, I think of it as they're death and dying from here, but they're birthing to a new place. Right. And that's how I kind of look at it. You know, yeah, they're sure. leaving here because their work is done, but they're going, they're being born somewhere else into something else, and they're still able to help us. They're still right. able to, to come back and forth. And, and that's what I think people have a hard time with. I mean, you know, there's all these, these reports and everything. Why is it, I would think that at this point in time, and, and yes, I know it's coming, but I would think science would be further along in understanding and actually saying, okay, we're going to stand behind this and back it more and, and it, to try to, to discover more and to teach people more so that there isn't this huge fear that people have living their entire lives about dying. You know how easy it would be for science to prove this? 
unbelievable. Yeah, you, they just have to read your book. <laughs> no, no, I mean to prove it. Quantitatively, qualitatively, replicable clinical trials. It's not a matter of technology. It's just ideology. Uh, it's nothing to do some... with whether it's real or not real or whether it can be done or not done. Uh, it would take virtually no money to, to do it in comparison to the sort of money that's put into things uh, in order to examine whether or not we are uh, a computer construction from supergiant, superconscious beings as a universe, our universe being you know, a virtual universe, for instance. I mean, that's the sort of thing they're willing to explore, but something that happens uh-huh. to every one of us, what happens to every one of us? No. What, what's wrong with us? Yeah, before World War sense. II, before the Atomic Age, anyway, let's say the Atomic Age is what turned all this around, um, there were an awful lot of scientists who were heavily engaged with the survival after death issue. It was a prominent thing. It was something that was a respected thing, and it seemed to make sense, wouldn't it? I mean, this yeah. is, we're... You know, we're not going to a virtual reality or to meet a super race who creates a virtual universe for us or whatever. We're not going to Mars. We're going to die, every single one of us. But that's the one thing we don't explore. That's why I call it the last frontier. Mm-hmm. Because it is. Yep. It is. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, absolutely, it is. Uh, you know, and there are so many people right now that have this huge fear. And I guess it happened a couple of years ago too, where the world was going to end, the world was going to end, and now the world is going to end on Friday. We're not going to wake up on Saturday. And I think, okay, you know, I have things I need to do. I'm waking up Saturday. Before then, tea. <laughs> <laughs> you know, seriously, it might help. <laughs> We're all going to die. <laughs> right? no, I mean, you have the... to laugh. Oh yeah, totally. This is this leftover apocalypticism stuff. We've been waiting you know? for it, you know, waiting for it since the, since the idea developed around 200 BC, yeah, the millennium, the turn of the millennium, the 1000 AD. You know, it was the rich were throwing all their rings and jewelry into the river because it is said that a rich person cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> you know, I mean, we've yep. been doing it. Year 2000, it was the another kind of scare. Civilization is going to collapse because right because of the computer mm-hmm. date change. And, you know, when I, I, I believe that we are seeing a raising of consciousness. I believe that a lot more people are understanding more and are open to more. That's probably a better way to phrase it. People are becoming more aware and they're more open to explore different things. And I believe that we're coming into that. There's a shift in energy in that way. I don't believe the world's going to end. I just don't. I think they, they, somebody got tired of writing the calendar and said it's 26,500 years. Somebody else can take it from there when we get there. And then we came, up with, right. <laughs> well, we came up with our own calendar, and it didn't match that one. Okay, fine. It's just somebody's version of a calendar. Get over it. You know, don't buy that one because you won't have anything to write on on the 22nd. So, you know, <laughs> it's really just kind of that, you know. It just, I, I just um, It's funny because there are so many doctors out there that are, like Brian Weiss, he was on the show a little while ago, formal wow. expert wow. in life fiction, you know, highly respected, well-regarded, a graduate also of Columbia and Yale. And there are other doctors who believe in reincarnation in the afterlife. It's good to see that they're starting to come out and it's becoming more mainstream because I think it does help people. And not just the people in the hospice situation, but the caretakers of the people as well. Absolutely. Because they're left behind. Those are the people that, 
they have to deal with it afterward. That's the whole grieving process afterwards, mm-hmm. so that they have some standing that, you know, I hate to use these words, but for lack of anything better, they're in a better place than we are. You oh, know, yeah. they're freer. But you would never right. say that to anyone because that's a horrific thing to say. But really, right. that's where right. they are. Yeah. Usually. What do you mean? Usually, Usually they <laughs> are. <laughs> If they haven't that. created a hell of their own making, you know, certainly they are. And they know it. But, I mean, there's something very sweet and unusual about the physical, physical experiment. And we did choose to do it. I don't think it's a very common one, truthfully. Um, I think there's tremendous more going on outside of physical reality than there is inside of it. So we should cherish this a little tiny millisecond in the face of eternity. Play we with should, it and yes. Enjoy it. Enjoy the limitations of it. But one yeah. thing I've noticed that people more and more um, are having experiences and using their intuitions in ways that were unthinkable a generation ago. And I said that everyone I've worked with so far has had an after after life encounter uh, under my um, in, in a class or just even standing on the street. I do this stuff, you know, with strangers mm-hmm. sometimes, um, wherever it is, and. And not to say that they're, you know, the fact that they're prepared for it has something to do with it, but more and more people are beginning to recognize a, a whole set of abilities that were not recognized a generation ago, such as telepathy, uh, visions, things of that sort, and paying attention to it more. And uh, there's everyone seems to have this talent, and it seems to be blossoming. Yeah, and I can only think that um, partly it's because it's time, partly because we've backed ourselves into a corner. We can't go any further with the ego thing, uh, which is just you know material-based uh, reality as it's perceived through the physical senses. But also, it's the technology that's pushing us, not just the phone, which was the big one, but we're used to mm-hmm. waves in the air hitting our TV screen, hitting the TV, and uh, you know transmitting pictures. We're understanding the electrical transmission of of things that we turn into pictures that we make into physical stuff. If you regress a child, a person into infancy, chances are very good. You ask, "What are you seeing?" They'll say, "Well, it's everything's waves. They don't see solids." Okay. You have to learn how to focus on that. Um, the internet is doing a huge, huge favor, uh, training us to be working with inner dimensions. It's all an analogy. And it's changing mass consciousness. And when mass consciousness changes, as it is very rapidly now, certainly in America, not so much elsewhere, uh, then these things will become more real and they will become investigated, as really they already are. And there's been substantial afterlife communication through technology already, by the way. Hmm. And and it can be a lot more. It's just a matter of of applying ourselves to it and throwing a little money at it. And I mean a little money, not much. Hmm. The technology. Yeah, is there. I think. And and it will come about. It's just that yes. we need the right people to be able to do it to yeah. to push it, yeah, it to that, push it through. Just as with anything everything. else, if, if we can, right. if we can do it through technology. It'll legitimize everything, and then the whole thing will kind of start to explode. It'll take a long time for it to trickle down to the popular um, idea, you know, just in the same way that 
people still refuse uh, to understand how much we are really energy and almost no matter. People don't like mm-hmm. to hear that. They don't think about it. Uh, the same thing will be probably so with uh, whatever they discover in terms of proving the afterlife. It might take a long time before that seeps in. On the other hand, from what I know from future incarnations of mine, in another 200 years, this is going to be status quo, afterlife communication and interdimensional communication. Uh, There's going to be a huge shift of understanding by the end of this century. Yeah. The word consciousness, there'll probably be 150 words for different kinds of consciousness in 200 years. Sure, because everything is going so quickly. I mean, every all kinds of technology in every form and every shape, whether it's you know computer technology, biotechnology, it's all being it going so fast right now and changing so rapidly. It can't help but this will go along with that. Right, communication technology, especially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's where it's all going to yeah, come that's from. Yeah, that's what this is. Yeah, it has about, to. Right? It has to come from mm-hmm. there. Because mm-hmm. yeah. I, I look at it like you know, people will say, "Well, why doesn't my mother come to me directly?" Well, because you're obviously not putting out the right antenna in order to receive. You know, you have to really work it. And your book does give some hows to do. So people, you know, it's a great book to get to read about what the process is, learn about different things, and learn how you can, too, start your communication process. That's what I think is so great about your book, that you offer that as well. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, very important component because you can read about all these things, but then you wonder how to do it, you know. So this, this gives people that option. Yeah, my feeling mm-hmm. is if you want to know what happens after we die, ask the people who've already done it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and if we were good at this, you know, if we get good at this, um, we we would have a resource that would never been known before of all the people living in this non or existing in this non-local reality, also from the future, where we can tap into them, and uh, the resource is unimaginable. At this point, I mean, I can't even even fathom how how enormous that would be to be able to tap into these things. You know, instead of the kind of inspiration that we wait for, or a lot of physicists actually engineer engineer try to engineer dreams and engineer mm-hmm. inspiration. They really do. They work at it. They go to hypnotists. They go to dream dream people uh, because because of Einstein mainly. Um, Knowing how he worked the intuitive side of them to come to solutions or break breakthroughs, um, we can get that inspiration very directly, and we can get it even technologically if we make this bridge happen between the side we, and, the, and the other. And we can do that. And all you have to yeah. do is purchase her book. And you know, we're almost—I can't believe how quickly this hour went by. We're almost at the top of the hour, Juliet. But before we go, would you please tell our listeners how they can find out more about you, your work, your workshops, where they can purchase your book, and anything else that you want to tell us? Well, the book can be purchased just about everywhere. It's uh, in bookshops. It's in uh, all online dealers. It's certainly mm-hmm. Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Uh, and just to get a little bit of a grounding, my website is and where my schedule is, schedule of events, uh, workshop information, et cetera, and so forth, and a lot of blogs, my website, which is www.juliaasante.com. And you can also reach me through there. I'll get it as a private email if you want, or you can uh, certainly leave your remarks or comments on blogs for the public. And that's Julia, J-U-L-I-A, and then Asante, A-S-S-A-N-T-E. 
exactly. So it's JuliaAsante.com. It's got all kinds of information on it. That's really terrific. I can't believe how quickly this hour went by. <laughs> you know, you know what's a good show. I knew it would be with UT. <laughs> yeah, you know it's a good show, and it just goes by so fast, and, and, you, and your mind's blowing away, and you can't even think of what. Oh, what great, to, thanks. You no, know, it's wonderful. So thank you very much for that. Um, let's see, listeners, you need to spread the word. If you enjoy what you hear on Energy Awareness Radio, then share it with your friends. Send the link to the show so they can be made aware of all the wonderful things that are offered on this program. Every single one of my guests shares their time freely. They give us a minimum of 60 minutes out of their day to help us all, and they do it at no charge. You pay nothing for their wisdom and knowledge. And, you know, these are wonderful guests who share their time and their expertise with us. So go ahead, tell everybody, pass the word, make sure others are aware, and let them grow and learn and make this world better for everyone. Thank you again, Julia. I very much appreciate you taking oh, time. Thank you, T. Oh, Thanks for inviting okay. me on. Oh, it was a pleasure. On behalf of everyone here at Energy Awareness Radio, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in this evening. My name is T. Love, and I hope you'll be back next Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for another great show here at Energy Awareness Radio. So go ahead and mark your calendar. For more information about me, please visit my website, quantum-wellness-center.com. You'll find an archived list of past shows, a lineup for upcoming shows, as well as information about other upcoming events I'll be hosting throughout the year. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at NR. NRG Aware Radio. That's at NRG Aware Radio. I am your host, T Love, here at Energy Awareness Radio, intending you and yours a most wonderful week and wishing you all who are celebrating a most wonderful and magical Christmas. Take care, stay well, and remember, living from your heart is quite easy. You need only give thanks to do so.